0: Once again for the podcast, Harry Styles once called, quote, What are you doing in my dressing room? Marcy, call the police. That's right, it's Two Girls, One Podcast, your number one source for the hot goss and fan dish about all things One Direction. And now here are the hosts whose f-yeah-zane.tumblr.com page went briefly viral in 2014, Allison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Two Girls, One Podcast. I am Lindsay.
2: And I'm Allie.
1: And we are so happy to be with you all. I just have to say again, I am not coming from my home. Today I am dog-sitting a beautiful senior dog named Leo who is blind, so we got to be at his house. We can't be at my house.
2: There is a new, maybe it's not new, but I just heard about it, website where you can stay in someone's house for free all around the world. You just have to promise to take care of their plants and their dog.
3: Why are we not covering that?
2: Lindsay's nodding like you already knew. Yeah, it's not new. I want to live in someone's mansion in France because I'm taking care of their dog and watering their vineyard.
1: Uh. So <laughs> that works,
2: right? Watering the vineyard. So, uh, step it up, Lindsay.
1: <laughs> I do, I do know about this thing. I think it's called trusted house sitters is. is actually what it it's is. called. It, oh. That sounds right. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's a she business, but, it, it. but it's one of those things that's like that doesn't exist without the connectivity of Airbnb, meets dog sitting, meets commerce, meets trading online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, meets mm-hmm.
1: good people.
3: Not yeah, it's gotta be a lot of vetting for this kind
2: of thing, you know?
3: Yeah. yeah, and horror stories too.
1: I'm ready to travel the world. I had a very big weekend this weekend. I was hiking with my beautiful friend Sasha. And we went at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning, which is early on a Saturday morning for me to be out in the world. Like I was partying the night before. Hello. Then we're coming down literally at the end of the hike. And these two beautiful black people come up to us. We are also two beautiful black people. (laughs) And they're like, are y'all here for the hike? And we're like, oh, yeah, we just finished it. (laughs) And they're like, oh, no, like we're part of the black hiking group. And Sasha and I were oh. like, what? <gasps> this is literal magic happening right now. And we were like, are we about to do this hike again just so we can have cool <laughs> black friends? Yes, like, And cool. we almost did, but instead we just got coffee before their hike and then we didn't do the hike again. But there's a, there's multiple black hiking groups in LA that I didn't know about. Did you have coffee with the group or no? You did you? did Yeah, we had coffee with the people who were waiting for the hike to start. That sounds nice. fun. We finished our hike at 9 and theirs started at 9.30. So we just like hung out for 20 minutes. So It was great. Yeah,
2: that's amazing. That's like if someone walked up to me and they're like, do you love teenage drag queens who sing musicals? We're all getting together. You know what I mean? <laughs> it truly really is. But, you know, it's, yeah.
1: <laughs> it, it, is, it felt exactly like that.
2: Because we, you and I have talked about this. You started an Instagram at one point. That was like brown girls hike or something or
1: Uh, no, I, I am a part of multiple like online things about black girls liking to be out in nature. Yeah. But no, I wanted to do a podcast called about like getting black people to do more things outside Right, where each episode would be about a myth that black people harbor, like. It's too many bugs. (laughs) It's like okay, there are bugs. It is outside, but here are the things you can do to like mitigate that issue. Can you
3: can you talk to my wife who is white and also says I don't want to be outside? There's too many bugs.
1: There's a lot of crossover between white jewish women and black women (laughs) she's She's also not she's not
3: jewish but anyway
1: (laughs) dang well matt you're disappointing all of us
3: (laughs) strangely people don't like bugs i don't know what's up with that (laughs) all right so you've got a couple projects in the works it's the um the next generation rewatch show it's the uh black people hiking show uh what else
1: yeah, we. I'm here to do any Star Trek rewatch, but also <laughs> I went to the Bridgerton experience. Did I talk about this on the show yet?
2: I saw that on Instagram. No,
3: no, no.
1: Yeah, so, um, I am reading all of the Bridgerton novels <laughs> right
3: now. Oh, oh wow. these are You've books before in. they were shows? Or are they are they adaptations of the show?
1: <laughs> They're, the, they they precede the mind. show. This is
3: what the show is based on. Got it, got it. <laughs>
2: My friend Jackie, who was the choreographer for the sketch show I did in New York forever that I started with Jen, she blew up on tiktok because she started doing bridgerton parodies and then like shonda Rhimes reshared her and stuff and now she's like a tiktok star doing like bridgerton jokes (laughs) like almost exclusively i mean specifically she plays a woman who like watched bridgerton fell asleep woke up and believes that she's like from (laughs) bridgerton and like doesn't understand why like she lives in this apartment with
1: this man, you
2: know?
3: <laughs> that's a good, great premise.
1: That's hilarious. It's
2: actually been amazing because they've built out this whole world and her husband is a songwriter and there's this song about New York in it that's like, everyone's commenting that like this has Lin-Manuel Miranda vibes. It's wild.
1: That is very fun.
2: She's at Brooklyn Basics on TikTok.
1: Oh my gosh, I can't wait to follow her. Well, it's one thing I'm going to say about the Bridgerton experience. When anyone asked me what it was like, I say, It was like an all ages prom because people (laughs) literally deck themselves out. Oh,
2: I love that.
1: People would come with their like 12 year old daughters and their 80 year old mothers. It's like crazy. The, The age range was all of the ages and they really go all in. And then there's like a little show where there's like kind of a little love story in the show. The queen comes out. There's like these two people that are dancers. They do a bunch of very fancy dances. Then they do some like english country dance style things and then the queen picks a diamond and it's very cute
2: (laughs) it kind of seems up my alley
1: yeah but
2: i've never seen bridgerton so i was like i can't go to this
1: there were a lot of people that i would have invited but they just haven't watched bridgerton yet and i'm like you would love this i can't get
2: started i watch not that many things because it is such a huge investment but i am addicted to stranger things and i started watching season four and for those of you who watch or don't, whatever, there's insane cliffhangers at the end of every episode. The whole thing is, like, stressful because you, like, care about these kids even though you know it's all fake. So last night I was like, you know what? I'm going to cancel all my plans. I'm just going to binge it and get it over with. Ooh. <laughs> I'm just going to get it over.
3: You know, this thing I love so much. Let's just fucking get it over with. Because it's all I can think
2: about. You know what I mean? That and, you know, (laughs) one other thing. That's it. But I just, just, (laughs) uh, you know, and so I finally watched it and then it ends. And it turns out, it's only volume one, and volume oh, two doesn't oh, come out till July one, and it ends on oh, an insane cliffhanger. Oh, and so I was like, oh my God, I bet if you like tested my cortisol levels, like I am in a state of stress because of this fucking show. Like if I'd realized there was a volume two, I'm a dumb dumb. apparently everybody knows this. If I'd known there was volume two, I would not have even started binging till June 29th.
3: Right, right, because everyone, yeah. all the super fans binge it hard, and then they have to wait like 600 years for for the next thing and that's fun that you, it, you you're you literally the whole culture is stopped you have, you have to pause to get the next dose
2: i know but they ended on such a cliffhanger and it's like it like hurts <laughs> it like hurts this is my night last night
1: i'm gonna be dog sitting again in early july so ali you should come to wherever i'm dog sitting and we can binge it then
2: yes i wish i had known do not start but offline let's plan a date to binge volume two it's three and a half hours.
3: Okay.
1: Lovely. That's easy.
3: It's
2: only two episodes. Why didn't you just release them all?
3: (laughs) You've raised my (laughs) hype level exponentially.
2: Honestly, it is a masterpiece. It really is. You know what else? Season one was incredible because it was such a mystery or like what's going on. And then by season four, there was a part of me that was like, how does this all fucking link together? Yeah. And in the last episode, they link it all together and I'm you're so like glad holy you're shit like stuff from so season glad you're one, it's like, uh, okay it's a
3: masterpiece and the one other th- i totally agree with you the one other thing that i just goddamn love especially season three no spoilers but there are so many beautiful homages to other movies yeah and they're not it's not about spoken dialogue it's not about specific things it's just about like camera angles and body movements that you're like, oh my God, that's Back to the Future. Oh my God, that's E.T. And it's so, so good. Art- masterful in a subtle way. It's not over the top.
1: Yeah. It's like respectful and playful the way yes. that they do it. So it's yes. not like, <laughs> look, we watched this movie a lot when we were we kids. We like, this movie too. When yeah, we we're, we're kids. like, okay, yeah. we get it. That's but exactly it's like we right. were influenced in an artistic way, not just like we're fanboys, which is Correct. which is great. It's beautiful.
2: Speaking of fanboys, today we're looking. Yeah, we we got there. We're looking at something that we've like alluded to in other episodes, I'd say, which is mm-hmm. how these massive fandoms. And specifically, I think today's conversation is going to start with One Direction, but how these massive fandoms took on lives of their own and influenced the internet and culture. And with us today, we're speaking with Caitlin Tiffany. This is actually her second time on our show. We had her for Dead Internet Theory, if you want to go check that one out. But we're excited to speak with her. She just released a book about this. So we're speaking to her about fandoms about her book and hopefully afterwards you will run out and buy it but before that i bet we have
3: trivia all right i sure do have some trivia for you about you know one direction fandom the internet all the things we love on this very podcast let me take you back to october 2nd 2011 when louis tomlinson one member of one direction tweeted from his blackberry (laughs) quote always in my heart at harry styles yours sincerely Louis." that's what he tweeted yeah this was understood to be a reference to one direction fan fiction in which Harry Styles and Louie have been in a secret gay romantic relationship for years known by shippers as Larry, Larry. Stylinson. Lindsay mm-hmm. knows. Oh, I know. Uh, so this was kind of like a wink, a nod to the fandom, right? Mm-hmm. This tweet quickly became the second most retweeted tweet of all time and eventually surpassed Barack Obama's four more years tweet where he hugs Michelle after being no. reelected in 2012.
2: Oh, that makes me <laughs> sad, actually. Go on.
1: There's only one couple to rule them all, and it's Larry.
3: <laughs> it's Larry <Stilenson. laughs> Uh No, buckle up. It gets better. Currently, Louis's tweet from 2011 has 2.6 million retweets. We're only talking about retweets only for this trivia. Since then, it has fallen much lower on the most retweeted tweets list of all time because most of the most retweeted tweets are all BTS. BTS official accounts, the the members of BTS, it's just all tweets in Korean, most retweeted tweets of all time. But Louis' tweet, his quiet acknowledgement of 1D fanfic, is still on the list of most retweeted tweets of all time. What other tweet is ahead of Louis for all-time retweets? I have three choices for you. So... You're looking for the one that beats Louis's tweet from 2011 for most retweets. It doesn't mean likes, doesn't mean media coverage, whatever. Retweets only. Is it A. Ellen DeGeneres tweeting a selfie with Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, Brad Pitt, Meryl Streep, Julie Roberts, and more from the 2014 Oscars? Is it B. The family of Chadwick Boseman, star of Black Panther, tweeting from his official account that he had passed away in August 2020, 2020? C. A guy named Carter asking Wendy's for a year's worth of free chicken nuggets in April 2017. Or is it D, all of these are more retweeted than Louie's tweet. Or is it E, none of these are more retweeted than Louis, and he is still the king, above all others.
1: E. I think, yeah, I hope it's Chadwick Boseman's. But I bet it's that fucking chicken nugget one. But I'm gonna say Chadwick Boseman because I hold out hope.
2: If it's not... D or E, and you just threw Chadwick in there. You're a, you're a monster, Matthew.
3: <laughs> mm, oh, I see. <laughs> or ah. a genius, or a genius. Ooh. That's what I'm thinking.
2: Hmm. You know what I mean? So
3: wait what is what's your choice allie i missed it
2: i'm going with e none of them are more
3: okay you think louis is more more retweeted than all of these so you no yes. one is picking ellen or uh wendy's and no one is picking d that they're all more popular than louis right okay we will find out who is on the list of most retweeted tweets of all time all time as of this date when we come back from this important commercial break
1: We are huge fans of all of the people who are fans of us. So first of all, we would like to thank everyone who donates to the Patreon at any amount, but especially the following people who donate at the $10 or more level, starting with Wesley Cordell, Jerry Duran, and Jessica Fong, Kathy Phillips,
2: Matthew Scott, Melissa Elliott, William, Jessica Kybel, and Ken Oom. Thank Y'all you rock. so much. You two can have us. Say and sing your name in weird ways if you visit Patreon.com/2g1p.
0: And now an actual post from real life on a little website known as Nextdoor, courtesy of Best of Nextdoor.
2: Hi, I'm 52 years old and new to the neighborhood. I am looking for someone who can help me out. Get a little pot. Nothing too fancy, just something I can relax with and ease my arthritis.
1: My grandson gets me marinara. I do love a world in which grandparents and their grandkids are smoking up together. Yes, 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 more of that.
2: I mean, there's like a small part of me that's like, should I try to convince my parents to do shrooms with me? (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear the trivia, and then it's
1: time for our guest. The trivia.
3: Louis Tomlinson uh, winked at the One Direction fandom in 2011 becoming and I didn't share this with you earlier the 6th most retweeted tweet of all time as of now as of today which of these uh, beats him
2: Oh man you you kind of gave gave away some things
1: right there actually
3: Maybe maybe you can change sixth your answers if you like
2: most retweeted then yep. all the ones you listed could be Like the other five.
1: Yeah, but most of them are BTS.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of BTS on this list that we're not talking about. So sticking with my answer. There's some calculus here. Was it uh, Ellen DeGeneres' selfie from the 2014 Oscars? Nobody chose that. B, the passing of Chadwick Boseman on his account. That was Lindsay's choice. C, a guy named Carter asking Wendy's for some free chicken nuggets in 2017. Uh, Nobody chose D. Nobody got the D. That it was all of these are more retweeted. Ali went with E, none of these are more popular. Mm-hmm. Given the new information. Are we staying put? Yeah. Okay. The correct answer is D. All of these beat <laughs> Louis tweet. Wow. As of today. So those
2: are the five that are mo- more retweeted or something, or the four?
3: The most retweeted tweet of all time is by a Japanese billionaire named Yasuku Mezawa. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Oh. Um, and I don't know what he's tweeting because it's in Japanese, though I'm sure we could look that up. Those are the top two. There's tons of BTS on this list, but they're all lower than Louis's tweet. So that's super interesting.
2: Wait, oh, the BTS wow. stuff is all lower than Louis?
3: Yes, yes. Huh. All right, so uh, Louis is number six. Um, Ellen DeGeneres is number five with 2.9 million retweets. Chadwick is number four, with with also 2.9, but probably slightly higher than uh, Ellen. And the third most retweeted tweet, and the most retweeted tweet in English, is is Carter, a gentleman named Carter Wilkerson, who tweeted at Wendy's and said, how many retweets would I need to get in order to get free chicken nuggets for for a year? Mm -hmm. And Wendy's said 18 million. So he screenshotted that conversation with the Wendy's brand account. And then posted and wrote, "Help me, please! A man needs his nugs." <laughs> and this now is the third most how retweeted. Many does, tweet.
2: How many retweets does it have?
3: Three point two million. But I, oh, I, so I still believe the news coverage that Wendy's did give him a year's worth of chicken nuggets Gross. for that free. That should
1: be illegal. Nobody should have that many chicken nuggets. I like that. It's not that you have to eat them every day, Ali. It's just that you can <laughs> you if just you got want them. to. You can. <laughs> yeah, available. but then like.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess maybe he's just given a pass to go get them whenever he wants. Yeah, right?
1: <laughs> it's like a, it's like the a Wendy's black card. It's like instead yeah. of <laughs> an Amex black card, you get a Wendy's black card, and it's just like you show that everywhere, and they're like, "Oh, hey, Carter, here's some nuggies."
2: You know how a lot of restaurants have a punch card where, like, if you get 10, you get the 11th free? I think Wendy's (laughs) needs the opposite, where, like, if you hit 10, you're, like, cut off for a while.
3: That shit is bad for you. You know what I mean? Like, there
2: should be a limit. Like, you can only have nine a year. When you get to 10, they're out of there.
3: I just love these regular non-famous people who become famous for viral moments. And now Carter Wilkerson, who is now verified with 75,000 followers and is now famous for getting free chicken nuggets, is the chicken nuggets guy on Twitter. Like,
1: um, all right. Well, on that note, it is time to welcome back to the show Caitlin Tiffany, who is an Atlantic staff writer. And has just released the book, Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet As We Know It. Welcome back
4: to the show, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me and for reading all 40 words of the book title. Very generous.
2: (laughs) You're so welcome. It was my quota for the day. No, I am. Lindsay did it. So, okay. Why and how did Fangirls create the Internet As We Know It? Well, i got to <laughs> summarize your entire book.
1: <laughs> yeah, just give it to us quick. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding.
4: Um, okay, let me see about like the most, first of all, I think like a book subtitle is usually like a little more dramatic than it needs to be, but I, I do think it's, <laughs> I do think it's true that fangirls really like shaped at least the social web um, as we know it, but you can't say social web uh, in a book title. The internet is known, I guess, for connecting people who would have a hard time connecting offline or doing what they are interested in offline. So that is why the internet was adopted early by people who wanted to create and share porn. And it is also why it was adopted early by people who wanted to connect with fans because you can't really, there's not really local organizations that are catering to that desire to like connect with people who want to write fan fiction or want to like cut up images of a pop star and remix them into like meme collages or anything like that. So I think it's just sort of a natural impulse. Um, if you have a like kind of secret, maybe like obsessive interest to go to the internet to find people who share that. So it's just kind of been a, a pattern throughout the history of the internet that whenever a new platform was created, uh, fans were kind of among the first people to think of a use for it. So you see really significant fan communities going all the way back to the first dial-up internet era, like early message boards, early bulletin boards as far back as the 1980s. And then later, with like GeoCities, those were those were used to make fan sites for all kinds of different fandoms, Yahoo Groups. Then you have like LiveJournal. Um, then finally, getting up to the somewhat present day with like Tumblr and Twitter. All of these things had really obvious use cases for fans, or at least it, they did in their eyes. And they would kind of arrive and just demand more of the platforms than other users did. They were such enthusiastic participants and they spent so much time there that they would start to say like, well, why doesn't this work this way? Why don't we have this feature? Um, And really take kind of a creator's hand in the shaping of the social web, even as they were also kind of taking creators' hands in the shaping of the meaning of their favorite pop culture properties.
1: Wow, very cool.
4: I love that there was like nowhere for them to... Meet and
2: I like the idea that like right now there's the stereotype is like old people go to like knitting classes but like when millennials are old will they go meet up to like make memes of bands (laughs) they used to love you know what I mean like well that like like, in a computer lab (laughs) is something you know they all bring their laptops everyone else is like in VR but they like bring their old like MacBook Air you know what I mean and people stare like oh my god look at these little ladies with their MacBook Air you know what I mean oh my god I mean. That would
4: be beautiful. I can't imagine, like in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't imagine that people would still be making like One Direction memes in but like who knows? fifty years. I mean, I hope so. That w- that would be that'd be great. I mean, I hope not, but like it could <laughs> yeah, hopefully
1: we can get on, move along from that. But you know, maybe not.
2: You know, it's a nostalgia. Yeah. These
1: these One D boys be staying relevant. Mm-hmm. They're gonna have a reunion tour when they're.
2: 50 oh that's true that's true
3: yeah it'll be great i drove past a movie theater today and the movies were jurassic park and top gun and i shouted out my window what fucking year is it so (laughs) anything's possible it's crazy
2: caitlin um i'm about to quote you at you are you ready
4: yes (laughs) you're like what is the correct
2: answer here all right i love this quote fandom should be celebrated for what it can provide in individual lives but it also should be taken seriously for what it can do at scale We need to know what fandom can do and what it can't, and we need to try to figure out who might try to manipulate it and why. I thought that was a brilliant summation. So let's dive in. First, what can it provide for individual
4: lives? This is my favorite thing about about doing interviews so far is when like something that it took me months to <laughs> to phrase correctly in writing that we appreciate it is then presented, and I'm now I'm going <laughs> to ad lib about it <laughs> in a way that's much less intelligent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no pressure.
4: <laughs> um. Yeah. In individual lives. So I talk about what it provides in my own life in the book, which was sort of like a way of connecting with my younger sisters and I guess like escaping that absolute like abject loneliness and horror that was the college experience for me. It was really fun to have this like sort of secret thing to do that like wasn't depressing and that was actually like joyful. Damn, where'd you go to school? Yeah, where did you go? <laughs> what? I went to infamously depressing college, Cornell University. <laughs> ah, <laughs> you could have
1: transferred to Yale and then hung out with me and Allie. But yeah, that's where we
4: met. All right. Well, we're Dang. starting to hear That. All right. Okay. Go on. Go on. Sorry, I know it's really tragic. Um, but like other people, um, I think like a lot of people I spoke to for the book. Remembered becoming fans at kind of pivotal moments of their lives, like either when you are in sort of that intense emotional time of being a teenager or being a preteen and being kind of confused about what adult life is going to be like, or even like later in different transitional moments. Like one woman I spoke to talked about how she got married and then got really into One Direction and sort of like understood it as like a coping mechanism Wait, coping for what marrying the wrong man like what is that (laughs) no just going through a transition from you know existing in the world as just like one person for your whole life and then like kind of I guess like give like saying goodbye to being like a young single person and being part of this like permanent adult partnership is like a pretty significant transition. Um I don't totally get how One Direction played into it. That's like personal to her, but but that was like that was something that people brought up a lot and it also came up when I was speaking to a researcher named Daniel Savici who wrote a book about Bruce Springsteen fans in the 90s. He was finding that people kept saying like, "Oh, yeah, I became a fan during this like moment of personal crisis or this moment of transition." And, like, my fandom is kind of a way of, like, keeping track of time and, like, keeping track of this, like, narrative of my life and, like, who I am. So that's sort of the through line in the story is, although everybody's experiences were kind of unique. Wow. (laughs) So I'm just going
2: to go, we're going to move right along. What can it do at scale? Because this is the part that I think people don't realize, which is so fascinating.
4: Yeah, I mean, at scale, like already, I think fandom has really, I don't know if infected is the right word, but like kind of infected like political discourse. I think the way that a lot of people talk about and respond to like memes of politicians or like is is very, very much drawn from fandom. Like you either like stan Elizabeth Warren or you like absolutely hate the like, Horrifying villain, Mitch McConnell, Um, you know, I think that's the way that people talk about those things online is definitely in the tradition of fandom. And then we've lately seen fans kind of more explicitly recognizing like, oh, we've spent the last 10 years like teaching ourselves how to steer conversation and like direct attention on the internet. Therefore, like we don't have to only do that in relation to like whatever pop star we're obsessed with. We can like also do that in completely different contexts. So like last... Oh, Two years ago, during the the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, there was all kinds of groups of fandoms, most notably K-pop fandoms, that were directing a lot of attention to that cause or doing sort of like specific political actions that fandom had prepared them to do, like spamming a police app with videos of Korean pop stars until it crashed. Like, that calls upon their skill set. That's like (laughs) not something that everyone knows how to do. Or... I guess the sort of counterpoint sort of like darker example that I've been giving recently is like the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. Everybody that I spoke to in at the end of April, beginning of May was saying, "I don't understand why I'm seeing so much content about this. Like it's unavoidable. Why is it in my feed?" It's like because of fan practices, people have learned how to just kind of push out a narrative and sort of rally around these like conspiracy theory talking points and make it really difficult for other people to avoid seeing it. So as fans become more aware of their ability to kind of steer a global conversation, I think that's something to be aware of and be wary of and to also recognize that like at some point, various Political actors or commercial entities um, will be making efforts to tap into that or to benefit from that. Whenever Nicki Minaj s- suggested that her cousin's friend had some kind of swollen testicle problem because of the mm-hmm. vaccine, um, <laughs> <Yeah. Yikes. laughs> like Tucker Carlson, like really jumped into the fray with that and was sort of trying to like co-opt the energy of the Barb's of the Nicki Minaj fandom and kind of wrap them into his personal liberty anti-vaccine talking points on on Fox and I thought that was like a misguided effort. I don't he was not especially successful in that, but I thought it was super interesting that people like him were starting to notice fandom and like think about the ways in which they could benefit from it.
1: Well, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like there are malicious entities that try to like co-opt or rally fandom energy in a way that they're sort of taking advantage of the fandom and motivating it towards a thing that's maybe not what it's intended for, or maybe all of the members wouldn't possibly want to support, but people mm-hmm. try to coerce them in a, in particular directions. Have you seen that happen successfully? Or is it mostly like Tucker Carlson, where it's like, we we get what you're doing, old white dude, and that's not what we're doing? <laughs>
4: Within fandoms, there's always these sort of, like, behind-the-scenes power struggles over, like, what like what is the political meaning of this fandom? And, like, what are we going to be portraying outwards? I don't think I've seen, like, any pressure campaigns on a fandom from the outside that have necessarily worked super well. Although, definitely during, like, during peak Gamergate, I feel like men's rights activists got pretty good at whipping up frenzies within, like... Star Wars fandoms or like the Ghostbuster <laughs> uh, fandom or um, like the DC Comics fandom when, when Wonder Woman came out. I, they But usually that was kind of one-off, I think, just rallying, like riling up a bunch of men on the internet to behave terribly for a kind of limited window of time. I mean, actually, maybe with Star Wars, that fandom has had kind of endless problems with misogyny and racism, which I I haven't like reported out myself but I have to imagine comes from that kind of like repeated injection of of vitriol and like negative energy from various CD online spaces.
2: Wow. That makes me sad because it's so ironic because it's really not what Star Wars is about.
4: Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> cool. Unfortunately, I have seen only two. I've seen very l- limited hours of Star Wars, so I don't actually know what it's about. But
3: <laughs> damn, okay, this uh, this this interview is over.
4: Wow, thank you, very much. Nice and a half. I'm sorry. I know it's a real b- cultural blind spot and I should really... No, you shouldn't. It's, it's okay. There's so much. You can't know everything. Yeah, you can't know everything. Honestly,
2: only watch the originals. That's fine. Okay,
4: okay. Yeah. Yeah. But watch
2: the originals, but that's it, you know?
1: The OG3 are the ones that people are die hard for anyway. Yeah, And I say that as, as a millennial, so obviously... If you're Gen Z, you're into these the last three. That's the trilogy that you are into.
4: Right. Okay. I did see one of the Adam Driver ones, and I also saw part of the Hayden Christensen one once at the gym. Ooh,
1: skip those ones. Nobody likes those. (laughs) Yeah.
4: Okay.
3: Yikes. Bad movies, but really good parables about how democracy slides into... Fascism oh. for uh, good stories for our time, even though the movies are, are not good.
1: The parables are so hard to access through the terrible movies.
4: Uh,
1: there's there's better parables out there for slips sure. into fascism, which we might be living in one right now, actually. But okay, let's Caitlin. Let's talk about the fandoms that you are hardcore into. So we know about One D. Are there any other ones that you? were in before or
4: after? There definitely weren't any where I was participating in that way, like making my whole Tumblr about it and just like following (laughs) the conversation every day. I mean, I am like a lifelong Taylor Swift fan, but I think that's a little bit more like personal, I guess as Taylor Swift fans, in my experience, I've had a hard time in like interacting with other Taylor Swift fans because I feel like my relationship to her is so complicated and I want to be able to like make fun of her, but they don't always want to do that. Anytime I have tweeted a joke about Taylor Swift, the stands somehow find it and get angry with me. That like really hurts because it's like, I'm one of you. You don't understand. Like <laughs> I'm yeah. making fun of her out of love. I would just like to give her some notes.
2: Well, I, you know, there is that side of the fandom that's like so uh, strident
1: where, I don't know if that's the word,
2: but Mm -hmm. do you think that that has affected online discourse, right? That you you have to be all on board, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's no room for criticism.
4: Yeah, definitely. There's like parts of every fandom that act that way, especially on Twitter. um, You know, any journalist who's written anything like mildly critical about a pop star with any kind of sizable fandom is probably well aware of what (laughs) happens when you attract a fandom's attention in that way. I do think that like Twitter is a pretty specific fandom space. Where that is more of a norm on Tumblr, I see a lot more people making fun of the things that they're fans of and like riffing on them together. And obviously, like when you talk to a fan in real life, they don't act that way. Like they don't, <laughs> they don't like threaten to dox you and like tell you to kill yourself if you criticize something. <laughs> like if you're having like a regular, like bantery conversation about like that Taylor Swift song was really bad, you know?
1: Yeah. We've talked about. Tumblr on this show and it's like weirdly the healthiest or at one point was like the healthiest place on the internet Mm -hmm. for consuming things. But I want to know, I feel like we're talking about how this sort of mindset influenced and created the internet as we know it. What particular aspects of super fandom, which we have you know, been experiencing since the Beatles and probably before, you know, since Jesus, like what aspects of that are most strongly shaping how we communicate about things that we like and things that are important?
4: I think fandom has become like a marker of identity on the internet in a way that's like even more pronounced than it would have been before social media, because people literally pick images of the people they're fans of and use them as their profile pictures and cover their cover their blogs with them, tweet about them all day. So if you're thinking about presenting yourself online and like creating a personal brand over time, like for a lot of people that identity or that brand is like I am a stan and that becomes like really central to how they think of themselves because if that's what you do all day, then that's going to be who you are. And then as far as like what people who don't directly participate in fandom have experienced regardless i think like as i mentioned before is kind of fan language has really bled into all kinds of speech on the internet um there's a lot of words and phrases that originated with fandom that now like regular people on twitter will use all the time or the kind of like heightened emotional rhetoric of you know the famous fan Desires like, I wish Harry Styles would run me over with his car. And maybe you wouldn't, like a regular person wouldn't necessarily say that, but there is sort of this expectation that, like, if you really like something, you're gonna, or you really hate something, you're really gonna phrase it in these like intense apocalyptic terms. On Twitter, everything is either the best or the worst. And there's like an incentive in fandom to be the person who like picks through all the like wealth of material, all the like thousands of images that that you can find of somebody like Harry Styles because of the like hours of footage, hundreds of hours of footage of him that exist and sort of like piece together something new that you can present to the fandom. So like you would say like, I found evidence that Harry Styles is secretly in love with Louis Tomlinson. And here's my evidence or like, I found the best, the best graphic t-shirts featuring donut shops that Harry Styles has ever worn. And here's my my blog dedicated to that. And I feel like all of these, that these kind of like niche artistic formats like that are things that people have picked up. And that's like kind of how you get attention on the internet in general is through like inventing a new like visual gag or like curating a new aesthetic or like finding some bizarre like relic or trinket or fun fact or something that you can kind of like bring to the group and be like, I think about this all the time. All of those like, I don't know, scavenging, retrieving, presenting impulses, I feel like really originated with fans.
2: That's really interesting because you were saying, you know, the, the pride in finding something. So how has that actually led to the proliferation of misinformation? Like, do you think that also has its roots in fandoms?
4: I don't think that misinformation has its roots in fandom, but I do think that there were kind of, there were things happening in fandom in 2015 or 2016 that if you look back on it now, it's sort of the lens of today's discourse. Um, we would see as, as like, oh, those were kind of like, like limited audience misinformation campaigns. Like on Tumblr, there would be sort of Influential bloggers who were dedicated to the idea, as I mentioned, um, that Louis Tomlinson and Harry Styles were secretly in love. They were able to kind of control what their followers would see. Like they wouldn't mention Harry Styles or Louis Tomlinson if they had girlfriends. Those were those were referred to as um, stunts. So they wouldn't talk about those or post about those. If they did have evidence, quote unquote, of the secret relationship, it would kind of be presented <laughs> as like. <laughs> It would be presented in the form of these, like, GIFs that were edited in a really specific way. Like, oh, look, you can see them catching each other's eye across the stage. Or, like, here's this video of of one of them whispering something to the other. And I think what they're saying is X, Y, Z thing that's very intimate and romantic or whatever. Um, and kind of present these things as fact. And if, And if you did trust the person presenting it, you wouldn't be like, they made up the captions to this video. You would just be like, "Oh, well, I guess I couldn't quite hear what they were saying, but this person could hear, and now I know what they were really saying." So that that was like something actually that some fans who were on on Tumblr even more so than I was at the time brought up to me, like because they weren't interested in the conspiracy theory, they were sort of alarmed by how easy it was to only see proof of that conspiracy theory if you weren't kind of like going out of your way to follow blogs that that weren't pushing it.
1: Wow. The way that you're describing fandoms, it just kind of seems like a sort of mentality that's been around for forever. Like isn't this what created like most major religions? <laughs> isn't like this sort of way of, you know, this is how cults get started. This is how things go. But it also feels like people grow out of fandoms in a way that they don't grow out of like their religion or their cult. So What makes fandom like prime for just a certain time in your life?
4: I don't know that everybody grows out of fandom. I think like Mm. part of the like an important thing for me in the book was talking about women who were in their like 30s, 40s, 50s who considered themselves One Direction fans or like prior research by academics about lifelong fandom of, in other situations. So like, as I mentioned, the, the Daniel Savici book about Bruce Springsteen fans who remain fans their whole life, or there is also a, a Laura Brumman paper that's pretty well known within the academic world of, about Kate Bush fans and um, women who like found different ways to kind of integrate their fandom of of Kate Bush like into their lives as they grew older and a, a lot of that paper was about how they sort of explicitly set aside like time when they when their male partners wouldn't be home or wouldn't be paying attention where they could really like indulge in that fandom which you know in some ways is kind of sad but i think it's interesting to me how often people talk about fandom as something that when you are an adult and you do have all these other responsibilities and all these other demands on your time and you you kind of exist within a web of relationships and might sort of forget what it feels like to just be your own person, that fandom becomes like a little bit of an oasis where you can sort of return to that. I mean, I'm not a parent. I don't have like the same responsibilities as some of those women, but I, I feel like fandom has served that purpose for me too, where like I have grown out of it in the sense that I don't have the time to spend on on Tumblr every day anymore. And I'm not as excited about seeing a new dip of Mary Styles as I was (laughs) nine years ago. But like, if I do kind of like lose, I'm like losing my sense of self or like feeling a little bit like out of control or like confused or lonely or something, it is sort of like a nice like resting place to go back and just kind of recalibrate and be like, okay, at other times in my life, I have felt lonely or anxious or upset. Um, I have weathered these storms before. I remember listening to this song when I was going through a really, my first really bad breakup, or I remember listening to this song when I was like wandering around Ithaca, New York, one of the bleakest places in the world. You know, it just kind of helps you like come back to yourself, I guess.
2: Well, speaking of that makes me wonder, was there any sort of uptick in fandom activity during the pandemic?
4: Yeah, um I like I think it would be hard to measure, but I do feel like there was a lot of chatter about like people going back to their old Tumblrs in general, and probably some of that was fan activity. And then for One Direction fans sort of serendipitously the like 10 year anniversary of One Direction was July 2020 so that was a huge day online <laughs> for me personally I was kind of surprised actually like how excited people were about it and how many posts I saw about it my whole like my whole twitter feed was people digging up old One Direction memes or like tweeting interview clips and like really getting excited to have something to do <laughs> that was different than just like staring at the wall. Um, and I talk about in the book that like I had like a, maybe like a little bit of a manic episode and was like, I'm gonna go out and get supplies and make a cake and watch One Direction music videos all night and like pretend that I'm a teenager because there's nothing else to do. I don't know. I guess I'm I'm not like as immersed in fandom as I was nine years ago to say if there was a a real spike in in other fandoms
2: (laughs) Uh, speaking of you know going back to the idea that fangirls created the internet tech bros usually get credit for creating the internet as we
4: know it so what do you think is that relationship like tech bros did literally create the platforms but in the book i talk a little bit about some examples of fans kind of like demanding different features or like creating the need for them. With Twitter, for example, I think like that platform was really launched without like a clear reason to exist. So fandom was kind of the first like huge group to like move in and really make it their home. And then at Twitter really felt the need to like respond to them in some cases because they were, like, breaking the product. Like, Justin Bieber fans were constantly trying to, like, game the trending topics tag. So Twitter had to, like, recalibrate, like, what factors go into making a topic trend so it wouldn't just be Justin Bieber, like, literally all day, every day.
3: I'm so glad you mentioned that, because I used to cover that on a weekly basis. Oh, really? It was like, yep, Justin Bieber is the top trend again. (laughs) You heard it here. And then there was that shift of, like, no, this can't be how we determine what's important on on these platforms anymore. There was a moment in time, so I'm glad you were I'm glad I'm not the only one who remembers that thank
4: you yeah what a what an odd time on the internet <laughs> like some Some people got like a little bit- like even wiser about it. Like I talk about in the book also the the guy who founded Pinboard, which is like a fandom tagging site. Well, initially it was just a general tagging site just for like collecting. You could use it to collect links and organize links and whatever else. Yahoo owned this rival tagging site, Delicious, and they made this change to the tagging system that made it like less useful for fans. So he explicitly was like, okay, I'm going to make this open Google Doc. If you're in fandom, come tell me what features to add to my website, so that you'll use my website instead of this other one. I mean, I've I've never used Pinboard, but I I am pretty sure he made a lot of changes like in response to that. And I think you see like little examples of that throughout the history of all of these platforms, even the ones that were just kind of created by tech bros who like don't have a lot of conversation with their user base. I mean, like Tumblr, especially (laughs) like Tumblr basically caters openly and exclusively to fans all the time.
1: I thought you were going to say tech bros who don't have a lot of conversational skills.
4: Oh. (laughs) But you said conversation with
1: their fans, (laughs) which is better.
2: So I think that uh, fandoms are often overlooked as like screaming girls. Um, You mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement and how fandoms behaved during that time. Can you cite
4: other examples of political or social activism with these fandoms? There was actually a sort of negative reaction from the like communist party in China because a bunch of fandoms of like TV actors there organized in the beginning of the pandemic to like disperse masks and you know other like hygiene materials which obviously like wasn't exactly like subversive behavior but they the party actually put out like an official warning saying that people should be aware of like highly organized fans and the like chaos that they might (laughs) be able to like enact if they pivoted from from innocuous tasks like disseminating masks to doing something else and there's other places in the world where, like, governments have actually started to take notice of fan activity. The new president of Chile was openly appealing to, like, Taylor Swift fans during, as part of his campaign. There's been a lot of sort of, like, student protests in various parts of the world that have been supported by by fandoms in, in their local areas. Like, I think the Black Lives Matter example in the U.S. was actually, like, It was kind of like late, like as far as Americans were sort of late to notice the like organizational power of fans on the Internet. We're late a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: I just have one final question, which is a review of your book states the author insightfully examines contemporary loneliness and our growing need to feel like we're a part of something. And you've touched upon this a little bit already, but I loved it because it's also kind of what our podcast is about. You know, these communities and how people find each other and then they feel less lost. But I was wondering if you had any reflections on that. What is contemporary loneliness? What's going on with this? Why is this need growing to feel like we're part of something?
4: There's sort of the like intro to population dynamics or whatever explanations which is that like people a lot of young people like don't live near their family they don't like live where they grew up a lot more people are choosing to live in cities including myself and like doing work that involves just kind of like staring at a computer all day long like not necessarily talking out loud to other people or like if you aren't if you don't have a computer job you might still have like a really alienating job, like working in an Amazon warehouse where they like kind of deliberately make it impossible for anybody to converse because if you converse, you might unionize. Um, But (laughs) in any case, (laughs) um, (laughs) I think like we're, we're set up to be like separate from other people a lot of the time. And the internet too is also like not, there aren't that many spaces left on the internet. I think where you could go to have community unless it has this kind of, like, organizing principle of fandom. Like, that's a reason for people to come together and to, like, kind of share in a common cause and, like, have a a shared sense of identity that's, like, not necessarily overtly political all the time, not based in, like, some kind of shared cultural or religious background.
3: I don't know if we said it here or maybe one of our listeners was saying it in our discord, um, but it we, we've covered religion and cults and things of that sort and it's someone noted that it is hard for secular progressive people in the modern era to find community mm-hmm. unless it's a, unless it revolves around something they are passionate about, a fandom online because in in ye olden days you just kind of walk down the street to your church and that was your community or your synagogue, whatever it might be. And that is missing from the secular world today. And it, it kind of sucks that we don't yeah. have a place to go. So we go onto the internet and and I love that, but it, it can be alienated or it can be lonely.
4: Yeah, totally. I feel like this is also why Gen Z is like, I'm Catholic now. Um, <laughs> <you know?
3: laughs> is that a real trend?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh God. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about writing about that for the magazine. But <laughs> Fascinating.
3: Oh, please let us know. That's super fascinating.
1: That's wild. I love that. I'm proud of fandoms for how committed they are because I've only ever been able to be a fan at like the maximum length of one teen beat magazine or something in middle school. So (laughs) I'm very impressed with all the work that goes into it. And I do think they deserve to be influential. Their work should be recognized and the internet is the place for that. So Caitlin, thank you for coming and chatting to us about this unique and special, you know, group of people. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. What were the fandoms that you two were really into?
2: I mean, I'm. I just love Harry Potter, but that's really. I never was like, like I have a friend who like ran a friends fan blog or something <laughs> as a child. I never did any of that.
3: Yeah, uh, that I, I get the Harry Potter fandom, but that you know, you you love this stuff and you love covering it and talking about it, but you're not necessarily part of anything hardcore.
1: Eternal voyeur.
3: I guess so. Just
1: fascinated by humans. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the fandom that I was most committed to for the longest was the Atlanta Braves. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was obsessed for like a good solid 10 years of my life from age five to 15. It was all about the Braves.
3: Arguably the original modern fandoms were sports teams. Cause it's like, this team is from my city. P.S. Yes, they're not, but, but we're pretending that they are. So it's it's a it's like a nationalism, but it's a but it's a team you're rooting for them to beat other teams. So it's a tribalism. Yeah. And there's a church that you go to. It's the stadium (laughs) where you go and worship the team and it's fandom for players.
1: And you're in communal worship with others.
3: Correct. Correct. So that's the original IRL 20th century fandom is is sports and probably baseball in America
2: interesting actually because we sports are really accepted as not weird but like being obsessed with a band is considered weird but it's actually like pretty much the same you're watching other
1: people do their thing i realized as i was growing out of my braves time in my life and into other interests i was like Wow. People really like hate on soap operas and so do I. I I never really watched (laughs) them or anything, but (laughs) sports is kind of like soap operas for adult men. It's like literally Mm. the same thing is happening every week and they act like it's so surprising, you know, and they're very emotionally invested
3: in it. In a game, there is emergent gameplay that happens that is unknown and unexpected, and I think that's exciting, speaking as a non-sports fan, but as a fan of games in general, but I think the the better analogy is that professional wrestling is soap operas for men, because that is scripted Uh circus performance, but we pretend that it is like, oh, these real rivalry And I never got into wrestling, but people fucking are obsessed with it. Adults are obsessed with wrestling, even though it is the corniest theatrical craziness you could imagine. I don't understand it, but I, but I also, I, I, re, I respect it to a degree because it's like, I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum. If you like soap operas, cool. If you like wrestling, cool. I'm not. It's not for me. Ditto. Ditto on both. Neither of
2: those things are for me either. Mm -hmm. They (laughs) are not
1: for me. They're they're for most people, which is wild. You know. Yeah. 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 Well, everybody is secretly very into something. You know what I mean? Like everyone is a big, huge, crazy fan of something. Just because some people's things are more accepted than other people's things, they don't have to admit to how like unhinged it kind of is that they're obsessed with it
3: and that's what this show is about and and i also i agree with caitlin and and as we've discussed many times like it's really fun and nice to escape into your fandom as an adult because the real world kind of sucks or is boring or whatever
2: it's a mess
3: it's a mess so if i'm gonna you know love lightsabers for a little while that that sounds like a good time. You know what I mean? Like enjoy Harry Potter. Enjoy, just fucking enjoy something. That's not a bad thing, no matter what it is.
1: Like I said, like people act like this about their religions, and they just blindly follow, and they they get obsessed. And that's, I think, a little bit more dangerous.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I would mm-hmm. prefer they be obsessed with One Direction.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah. Well, we know some of yours, Lindsay. I mean, you're you're a big Trek fan, as we've discussed.
1: I wouldn't say I'm a Trek fandom. I'm like a regular a regular mm. user but I'm not Mm -hmm. an an addict, you know? Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Understood.
1: I think because I am very interested in people who are crazy obsessed with things, I get drawn into a lot of people's thing. Like I watch Star Trek with an actual crazy fan, right? And so I'm very open to receiving people's like insane obsession and they, they always want a place to, to spill their love. So I'm,
3: I'm, <laughs> you are the receptacle. Yeah, of that.
1: I'm the receptacle. And then they always think that I'm going to get obsessed in the same way as they are, which I don't.
3: <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's, you're a good friend. You're a good fandom. Friend. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a friend of fans.
1: I'm a fan <laughs> of fans. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, if you want to let us know about your fandom that you participated in or continue to participate in, you can tweet. Well, actually, across social media, I'm at Allie underscore Goldie.
1: I am at the Lindsay Life, Lindsay with an E.
2: You can also email us at 2G1podcast at gmail.com. Before you click out, let me also tell you that you can go to patreon.com 2G1P and support us there. You can also pop in our Discord, discord.gg 2G1P. You can find us on Facebook. Just look for Two Girls, One Podcast, and you can call us. That number is... 347-871-6548. Seven, seven, that
0: number again, 347 871 six, eight. Six, eight.
2: Thank you so much, and we hope that you'll tune in
1: next week. Heart your faces. Bye. Two Girls, One Podcast hosted by Lindsay
0: Ford and Allison Goldberg then licensed for a three album distribution deal by Simon Cowell's record label I mean produced by Matt Silverman in New York City this episode was edited by Avital Ayler. production assistance is provided by the podglomerate this show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in-depth reporting about life on the internet.
3: The Podglomer, a sonic universe.
1: My grandson gets me marinara.